Hey, thanks so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We've got a great conversation on the way. A couple of things. If you like the show, you can support us on Apple Podcasts. Give us a rating and review. You can support us by telling a friend, sharing on social media, or you can support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thanks for listening to another episode of Dissident Orthodoxy. I'm Casey Hobbs. So glad you're joining. Today I'm going to have a repeat guest, uh, Dr. Lauren Turek, and she appeared a few months ago and discussed her first book, To Bring the Good News to All Nations, Evangelical Influence on Human Rights and U.S. Foreign Relations. And I had told her back then that I would keep bugging her until she came back on. And so that's what I've been up to the last several months. Um, and being a scholar of uh, particularly Russia and its um, connections to us here in the United States, I thought it would be really great to have her come on and talk about Ukraine and uh, Russia and, and what we have going on now. She's a historian from Trinity uh, in uh, Texas. And Dr. Turk, thanks again for joining. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, so first question is, why should any of this matter to us? Um, it's actually kind of faded from the nonstop news panic that it was several months ago. Um, we have apparently bigger fish to fry and mm -hmm. yet it's still going on. So why, why should it matter? Yeah, um, so I'll, I'll just start by saying, so I'm a historian of US foreign relations. Um, and one of the things that I know from my own research is that Americans are not always uh, in terms of the broad public, they're not always super interested in what's happening in terms of foreign policy or global politics, unless there are particular moments of crisis that for some reason attract their attention. So I'm not surprised that it has fallen from public attention. There's certainly a lot that's happening in the United States right now that is drawing people's uh, concern. But I think we do need to care about what's happening with the Russian invasion uh, and war in Ukraine because Broadly, I think the United States and U.S. citizens should be worried about this, protecting the sovereignty of other peoples, protecting people's human rights. And Ukraine is a country that has a claim to sovereignty, right? It has rights as a state. Its peoples have rights. And those rights have been violated by essentially a bully on its borders. And so I think we, we should care about that because if we want to function in a community of nations that respect each other, which is not exactly what we have now, but that's the, the goal, um, that requires that those nations abide by certain international norms, or you're going to have um, these sorts of attacks elsewhere, right? So the more we can abide by norms and protect each other's sovereignty and rights, the more peaceful the world community will be. And I think we should also care because for people in the United States who are very concerned about things like inflation and gas prices, those are very much linked to what's happening in the war in Ukraine, more so in many ways than, than some other factors. So if you're mad about gas prices, if you're mad about inflation, you should care about what's happening globally because that's the, the root of many of those problems. Yeah, I wanna talk about uh, something you said there about being um, a bully to nations on their borders. I wanna talk about uh, that in a, in a broad sense and, and what all that entails from our perspective, from Russia's perspective, um, and as you know, regarding NATO, we'll have time to, to talk about that. But first, talk about the history of Ukraine, of Russia, um, and kind of how these two um, entities, sovereign nations, came to be, because um, it's an interesting history. 
Yeah, um, absolutely. So I just I want to clarify at the outset, I'm not a I'm a again historian of US foreign relations. So that's my, my focus is primarily on the United States. So I won't say that I am an expert on the history of Ukraine or the history of Russia per se, more the, the history of US relations with those countries. But um the the sort of broad history is that um there is a there's a narrative that we're getting from Russia, from Putin, about what Ukraine's history was. And then there is the narrative that the Ukrainians have about their own history. Ukraine as a country, um, like many countries in that part of the world, it had shifting uh, borders. It was controlled at various points by other empires, but it declared um, independence in the modern times for, for the first time in 1917. Uh, Russia attempted again to take control of Ukraine. Uh, they made it part of the Soviet Union at that point, and they had a considerable amount of control there. Germany invaded Ukraine uh, in World War II, and so then there was this, uh, you know, occupation. One of the things that Putin sometimes uh, talks about is he likes to suggest that. This means that Ukrainians who kind of welcomed some of these Germans, that they were Nazi collaborators, um, that's, you know, certainly I suspect some were, but for the most part, they're, they're eager for independence, right? They're looking to get independence for themselves. So the vast majority are, are just independent, uh, fighting for independence. Um, but they, um, they come back under the control of the Soviet Union, um, where they stay there until the 19 until the 1990s with the collapse of the Soviet Union. One of the other things that often gets left out of the narrative that Putin tells is that there was a tremendous uh, genocide that the Soviet Union perpetrated against the Ukrainian people. Um, they um, their policies, which targeted the way that the Ukrainian farmers uh, were sort of ordering their lives, uh, Soviet policies sparked this enormous famine in Ukraine in the 1930s that led to millions of people dying. Uh, somewhere around 13 or so percent of the Ukrainian population died, um, partly because they resisted Soviet policies. Um, the, the Russians also worked really hard to try to impose a Russian identity on Ukrainian people. So um, pushing for Russian language learning and that sort of thing. So you can imagine why when Germany invaded, some Ukrainians saw them as potential liberators, but they also didn't want to live under German control. They, they wanted a they wanted an, an independent state. So in other words, just to kind of simplify that, it's 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 complicated, but they're, uh, the people of Ukraine have a strong national identity. They have for a very long time. They see themselves as a country. This is not some new creation, as Putin likes to say. Uh, rather, it is a longstanding identity, a longstanding culture, a language, a, a, a place. And so they have been working very hard to assert that independence and sovereignty for, for a very long time. Mm. Yeah, one character that that pops up as you're discussing that I know his um, uh, kind of uh, popped up, I guess, in in the past several several months as um, as there's been more attention paid to Ukraine. But the the person of Stefan Bandera um, and being being one that uh, speak of like a Nazi collaborator and um, 
it's I think it was on PBS. Correct me if I'm wrong, but there was um, like a large picture of Stefan Bandera behind like a, a Ukrainian um, official as they were talking. So I'm, yeah, like the it's as I was um, as I've thought about this, I, I think and this is where I, I want you to correct me if I'm wrong on that too. But, uh, there's this feels like a, a similarity with maybe the U.S. South, and um, there's this kind of this large, messy um, legacy um, from that time, and um, obviously it's never a one-to-one -one comparison, and uh, <laughs> that's hopefully not what what is being heard. But um, but yeah, it's this kind of and I, and I hear that on both sides of this conversation as well uh, when Putin speaks um but yeah it's this almost this lost cause um ideology I was, that is exactly yeah. what I was about to say yeah kind of you know again somebody who really is is very very much sort of out to kind of he was out to promote his own role as you know he's he sort of labeled himself the sort of Ukrainian hero but here he is uh, aiding and abetting the holocaust so so it's it very much has the echoes of the lost cause there, but and he's a useful um, propaganda point for for Putin and for others, you know. Um, but as far as him being representative of the independence movement in Ukraine, again, not the not not the sort of current one, and he's he's not, you know, that's he's not he's not representative of the kind of independence movement that we are seeing right now, right? Um, he's um, but he is a kind of lost cause figure, I would say. I think that's a very, I think that's an apt comparison. Mm. Um, it's certainly, a, and you know, definitely a Nazi collaborator, um, somebody, you know, working, you know, to free, to free Ukraine from the, the Soviet power. But again, we should remember that for many in Ukraine, they're, they're not acting in that way during World War II, and certainly in the many decades since that has not been the case. It's just a, it's a very effective talking point, though, for uh, for Putin and for for people in Russia who, you know, are trying to attempting to marshal support for this uh, in, invasion that they've made. Yeah, I, I guess since since we're on the same topic, let's talk about the Azov Battalion, because um, uh, that being, from what I understand, a small contingent of um, People that that are that embrace um, a out now Nazi um, ideology, um, and then you know, even though their numbers and again, um, if, but of them being a small contingent in the military and in um, elect as far as elected officials, um, but I, I've kind of my thought is like if we, like I don't know. I, I would paint anyways, I won't put words into your mouth, but I would paint, I would say that the military industrial complex um, and, you know, policing, like what, whether it's international or domestic, um, has, a, has strong ties to whatever white supremacy, um, to, to, to imperialism. Um, and, um, and so it's kind of like this, um, if I can grab back my train of thought, um, it's, but it's, um, if, like, if the military were to say embrace the Proud Boys as, uh, as an official part of the military, 
Um, even even for people like me who would be like, well, the whole the whole thing is based on a really jingoistic, um, a really uh, imperialistic ideology. Um, and there's plenty of racists in the military. There's plenty of racists in um, the the police. But if there was like an entire department of like Proud Boys in either one, um, or if there was like, yeah, I mean, the same concern we have about say, I don't know, the Marjorie Taylor Greens or whatever of the world um, in an elected office. So, so yeah, I'm just kind of want to throw that out there too, since we're on the topic. Yeah. Um... I'm not, I, I, again, I just, I think that there's, you know, it, there's certainly a kind of fringe, but it's, that's not, you know, the, 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 the people in charge of Ukraine, the people, the vast majority of the people fighting, like they're not, it's not a, a Nazi aligned or fascist regime. <laughs> so um, it's just such a small fringe part of the population, you know, I guess that's, you know, like there were certainly like some separatist forces, but they're useful for propaganda. They're just not representative of, of the larger whole of, of the Ukrainian people more generally. So um, I think it's, again, like the fact that there are those separatist groups. Sure. I mean, there were separatist and Nazi groups in the United States currently and, and back in World War II as well they're not, they're sort of not representative of the majority. Yeah. Right. To push back one more time into that though, like if they were incorporated into the military, I think it seems like that would be- Well, there different... are, I mean, there are here. I mean, our military has a tremendous number of white supremacists. That's a problem in the police forces as well. I mean, that's a large issue to deal with. It's not representative of the entire military though, but, but there's certainly those elements that have made their way in. And we have an enormous sort of problem with the militia movement, which is against separatist forces. And so we we do have that kind of homegrown issue here. Um, so I, again, though, I don't think that represents, I hope, the majority of Americans in the same way that having a fringe and separatist movement there doesn't represent that. Yeah. Um, so let's go back to, to the Cold War, end of the Cold War. And I don't know, I guess taking like a 5,000 or 25,000 foot elevation, I guess, from like the end of the Cold War up into um, the current and and just kind of throwing out a couple of, of themes that we've seen, um, even like the the 2014, uh, where there's the annexation of Crimea or the Maidan coup um, and uh, the, the Minsk Accords that, um, that came out of that and were a proposal for peace. Um, yeah, just kind of, I guess, give us the broad, big broad strokes of, um, of our particular relations to uh, Russia and Ukraine. And um, I guess we can, we can start talking about NATO and that. Yeah, I think it would be very helpful to talk about the, the context of the Cold War, how the Cold War changed during the 1980s to help understand the way that the Cold War ended, uh, which I think best sets up the context for what for what is going on so and of course with historians you always want to go back further and further um during the 1970s the united states was pursuing a policy known as detente an attempt to relax tensions with the soviet union in part because the cost of the arms race had spiraled 
so much that it was hurting both countries. Um, this was a policy that Ronald Reagan strongly opposed. He ran in opposition to it. He very much wanted to uh, resuscitate the kind of muscular posture against the Soviet Union of the early Cold War. And so he ran very strongly on that. Of course, um, detente sort of came to an end when the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan in 1979. So it was already moribund at that point. But, uh, but, but Reagan really runs on this idea that there needs to be the strength against the Soviet foe. And so he comes in and he really revivifies the Cold War. He very much escalated the tensions that existed, not only through the rhetoric that he used when talking about the Soviet Union. And of course, there's that famous speech that he gives in 1983 to the National Association of Evangelicals, where he calls the Soviet Union an evil empire. But that's just one of many examples of him really rattling the sabers and talking about how he's going to, you know, essentially roll back communism, meet meet, commun meet the threat wherever he can. And that's a specific policy goal of the United States, right? Um, you know, they lay that out in 1983 in a national security directive that, that that goal is not just to contain communism, but indeed to to reverse Soviet expansion and Soviet objectives throughout the world. Um, and that they're going to try to not just roll back communism, but actually that they're going to take uh, steps to change internal Soviet policies so that there's going to be this multi-pronged effort. So that is a goal of the Reagan administration. And some of that comes through this increased defense spending, enormously increased defense spending, all paid for with deficit spending. So greatly growing the national uh, debt and deficit to the end of this, this arms buildup. And this is very upsetting and you know freaks out the soviet leadership there's this series of soviet leaders who are definite soviet hardliners you know early in reagan's term you know brezhnev will pass away he is an old old school hardliner he is followed by similarly sort of old and old school leaders right we've got andropov who only lives for two years, and then Chernenko, who only lives for one year before passing away. So these really old kind of old guys with a really sclerotic sort of approach. And then we get this new figure in the form of Mikhail Gorbachev, who has recently passed away now. But at the time, he was a relatively young, <laughs> kind of vibrant uh, leader, someone who was aware of the problems that existed in the Soviet Union the Soviet economy was not in a good place in the 1980s. They were struggling. It was very clear that the Soviet Union was not able to provide the kind of uh, standard of living that was enjoyed elsewhere in the world, and people were dissatisfied with that. The technological improvements and, and innovations of the Western world, it could not keep up with those. And there's this tremendous movement for human rights uh, that is coming from dissident groups, religious uh, minorities, et cetera, pushing for greater rights. And so there's all of this inner turmoil. And Gorbachev, who's a true believer in communism, wanted to save the Soviet system. He believed that the best way to do that was to impose some reforms, to open the system up a little bit, to uh, provide a little bit more transparency, that sort of thing. So policies like Glasnost and Perestroika. So the, but his idea was not to reform the system to become something it wasn't. His goal was to reform it to make a stronger Soviet communism. 
that is not what ended up happening, of course, and he set in motion a number of changes that rippled throughout the Soviet system and into the Eastern Bloc. Uh, we start to see, uh, he, he, one of the things that he does that's very interesting is, you know, over the course of these summits that he has with Reagan, they start to develop this very close relationship. And Reagan, in part because he has demonstrated his sort of strength against the Soviet Union, he actually becomes a very receptive uh, partner to him so that he's he's willing to make some concessions willing to work with the Soviet leader um, but it is it is Gorbachev who is driving these sorts of um, overtures that they're able to make progress on things like arms reduction as opposed to arms limitation really move towards a start treaty and that sort of thing um, but Gorbachev you know at one point he's going to write um, later in the 80s he actually writes this or he gives the speech at the UN where he he really sort of announces some significant changes to his ideology. He tries to de-ideologize the Cold War, and he he really reaffirms the right to self-determination. And once he sort of affirms that, then some of these um, changes that are happening in Eastern European countries and places like Poland and Hungary and elsewhere, we're starting to see these dissident movements gain even more traction. And as those countries start to do things like hold free elections where Soviet leaders do not get elected, communist leaders do not get elected, Gorbachev kind of goes along with it. He doesn't send troops in to Poland. He doesn't send troops in to Hungary. Instead, those countries change their government style, right? And it opens, it's like a, it's like a snowball effect, right? Then we start to see that happening in Czechoslovakia and then in Germany. And suddenly we have a real issue. Once the, once the wall comes down, there is a question. Uh, in 1989, 1990, 1991, what is going to happen to Germany? The German people want to reunify very much. They, they feel that they are one, one people. As soon as the restrictions in Hungary had been lifted, a number of people from East Germany had started to travel through Hungary to get out to the West. Um, once the wall came down, there's this enormous sort of drain of people westward, which is a pro which is a, a threat to the East German state. So there's a call for reunification, which makes France and England nervous. They're not thrilled about that idea. Like Germany within living memory of many people had attempted to take over Europe. Not, not a good thing. They're worried about a revived and powerful Germany. Um, Gorbachev also has concerns about that. Um, but they sort of start this process of negotiating what this will look like. Um, I don't know if we want to pause here to sort of talk about that or yeah. or where we want to go. Yeah, no, I, I think I think that that moment as those negotiations are going on with James Baker, the Secretary of State um, under Bush, and you have this conversation. And actually, Putin brings it up in the speech um, at the day after the invasion um, that there were promises made to, to Russia that NATO would not move one inch to the east, right? And, and it's not in writing, which yeah. is a bit tricky, uh, but there's tons of, of history now and documents that, that would seem to, to back that up, um, that you know, even Baker himself after the fact, I think, um, was someone that, that was very adamant about this. Um, and then uh, I think even with foreign policy, U.S. foreign policy 
and from like Bush until Clinton, um, when he when we do expand NATO eastward, um, I think I think about even Kissinger. I mean, who like I'm, I'm looking for ghosts in my room as I as I bring up Kissinger as like a as an, some sort of person with his head screwed on straight, but he's been saying all along that moving NATO east would be cataclysmic um, mm. and would be pushing for world war. Um, and so, yeah, so I'm, I don't, I don't, I'm, I'll probably just cut you off and, uh, <laughs> but no, but no, that, yeah, that history. Yeah. I mean, is no, it's, it was so interesting. So, so right. Cause so Baker does say they're having a conversation, right. And Baker makes this very now famous, uh, speculative statement, like, Oh, not one, not one, one inch further will we move NATO. And of course, yes, uh, the the sort of narrative in Russia now is that that was a pledge, that was an agreement, as you said, not one that was signed. Importantly, it is not one that President Bush believed in or agreed to. Right when Baker goes back and they're kind of talking about it, like this is not what President Bush wanted. He did not. Uh, he certainly did not agree to that. And so, in a way, it it seems like a moment of uh, over exuberance, perhaps from from Baker. It's a it's a very, um, you know, it's it's something that came up that they're that they're speaking about, right? Um, can I can I um, can I yeah, interrupt? Interject. Okay, yeah, so, please yeah, do. So I'm looking at an article from the National Security Archive, and I'll mm -hmm. put it in the show notes. Um, but it says. Uh, Quote, at the Washington summit on May 31, 1990, Bush went out of his way to assure Gorbachev that Germany and NATO would never be directed at the USSR. Believe yes. me, we're not pushing Germany towards unification. It's not us who determines the pace and progress. Um, so yeah, without the without so those exact words, right? That is really important, though. And if we look at the actual final treaty that Russia signed, the treaty that they signed, where they actually make an agreement, right? One of the things that it says in there, and it emphasizes this idea of self-determination. If we look at Article 6 of the agreement, I'm just going to quote it, the right of the United Germany to belong to alliances with all the rights and responsibilities arising therefrom shall not be affected. In other words, the agreement that they signed explicitly gave Germany the right to join NATO and from there and did not sort of say anything about whether nato would expand from there it, the germany had the, uh, the the one sort of concession there is that they weren't going to do it until the the soviet the russian troops leave um so they're not going to do it right away um and gorbachev you know in exchange for agreeing that germany could that a reunified germany could join nato he gets a lot of financial aid and support from the united states so, so trade and that sort of thing so it is not like something that snuck in under the radar that he didn't realize that nato was going to expand or any of that like they agree that germany can join nato and there isn't anything said officially in this in this treaty that says and that will be the end of nato expansion right so when we get that final settlement that is right in there. The other thing is that there had been a number of expansions of NATO. Um, so it's it's not, you know, since, in the years since, since yeah, yeah, since 1990, mm -hmm. it's, you know, and they have not been cataclysm, you know, that, that sort of cataclysm hasn't, hasn't happened. So some of this is, um, I think, again, a, a useful tool for Putin to stir up support at home not that he needs it given the 
the sort of power that he wields over his citizens but but it is significant i think one other piece though is important here because the changes that gorbachev instituted the signing of this agreement we should keep in mind that it's not as though putin didn't wasn't around like putin is around at that time sure. he's one of the people of many people in the soviet system who are furious about these changes i mean there are a group of hardliners in uh, the soviet union who seek to uh, you know sort of topple gorbachev uh, you know, and he, and th that will happen, but he'll be replaced with Yeltsin, which is not what those folks want, but they are furious. They do not like the direction that this is going. They believe that Gorbachev has, uh, you know, indeed led directly to the, the crumbling of their empire. And that sense of aggrievement is going to stick with Putin, that he feels that these changes were disastrous and he would like to reclaim what he sees as Russia's rightful empire. And so I think that helps us understand not just the antipathy towards NATO expansion, which it has, again, enlarged several times. Including um, since, since all this with what Sweden and Finland, and yep. Finland, another nation on the border of russia yeah yeah uh, but i mean there and but there are agreements in the in the meantime where the united states is working to kind of tamp down on some of that anxiety right there, there's a an agreement in 1997 that you know where they attempt to kind of ease some of the fears that russia has about nato expansion but again like there's a, a certain amount of putin is very selective in which history he's choosing to highlight when he when he speaks about his sense that he's been betrayed by the west or, or betrayed by these agreements betrayed by gorbachev right and he very you know you know refused to really commemorate gorbachev's death there's sort of silent protest of him right which I, this week which i think really shows the depths of his of his anger towards the changes that gorbachev's leadership wrought um and i think so much of the uh, the way that he put, has attempted to push out like invasions in Chechnya, in Crimea, in Ukraine, like these are efforts to, again, reclaim what he sees as Russia's rightful empire. The problem is that it's not what those people in those countries want, <laughs> for mm -hmm. the most part. Of course, there are, you know, he makes common cause with some separatists, but. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the Russian separatists in the Donbass um, and since 2014, there's 14,000 dead. Um, yeah. And I think it seemed, I mean, again, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong in everything I'm saying, but it uh, seems like that's from the Ukraine, Ukrainian military and these, uh, as you say, small sects, but the, the Azov Battalion and, and others that are engaging in warfare against those uh, Russian separatists. And it, again, that, that comes up in Putin's, uh, Putin's speech. And just yeah. to, you know, to reiterate too, I mean, I think there's always an excuse for war. There's always a rationale that, that ignores opportunities for peace. There's always, like, as someone that is probably uh, as close to pacifist, I think, as I ever have been at this point, like, <laughs> I don't think there's ever a time that, that it, like, that war is inevitable, um, and it's certainly not something that just happens, and 
I mean, I think Putin from everyone that either criticizes or at least understands him in this time, I see very little support for the man himself. Um, But yeah, yeah. um, Well, the one thing I would say is that, so, so yes, um, one of, one of the things that I think is interesting, if we look at uh, opinion in Ukraine, um, since the invasion of Donbass, what, you know, and sort of going back to, you know, 2014, the the majority, the sort of winners of the elections throughout all of Ukraine have been pro-Western, not pro-Putin or pro-Russia. So it's, so so in terms of like, who's winning that the majority and not by like a little bit, like, like, like pretty, pretty good majorities are voting. And again, that's that's part of by design too. What was it? Um, um, Her name is uh, escaping me right now, but in, in 2014, there's a phone call, um, from, I think it was the ambassador, one of the ambassadors to, uh, Ukraine and her name will, will come to me at some point, maybe in my sleep later, but, um, <laughs> but she, she has this phone call that she says, um, Yanukovych is our, is our guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so yeah. There's, there's this clear, like, we are, we're in for Yanukovych and then, oh, Yanukovych wins <laughs> in a landslide. Yeah. yeah. And again, like people are voting for a range of reasons. Like there's also, mm-hmm. you know, it's not all foreign policy, just like it's not all foreign, it's really foreign policy here. Right. Um, but but I think there's a, a desire to, first of all, there is this kind of solidifying Ukrainian identity. Um, and there's also, you know, very basic economic reasons to support a, a different orientation for the country and so I, that to me is what's coming through um it's not going to be everybody um there certainly are separatists but um, you're seeing majorities vote to go the other way okay so correction and a clarification that was assistant secretary of state victoria newland and she was speaking with the u.s ambassador to ukraine jeffrey pyatt this back in 2014 right after the Maidan coup or the annexation of Crimea. Uh, They were discussing who the next leader of Ukraine was going to be, and actually the quote was, Yats is our guy. And that was a reference to Arseniy Yatsunyek, who is a Ukrainian politician, economist, and lawyer who was vehemently anti-Russia. So yeah, U.S. hands are all over that. And Victoria Nuland right now is in the Biden administration as Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, just so you know. Okay, so um, I want to, two more questions on that, and then kind of questions on like, where where is this going and, and what are possible solutions for peace? I know there's reports out just in the last couple of days uh, from when we're talking about the, the out-and-out efforts that, we have made that our that Biden administration has made to thwart peace talks, um, and that's that's been clear from the beginning. And especially if you look back at years ago, you have John McCain and Lindsey Graham showing up in Ukraine and and talking about how we're going to put the fight to Russia. And this mm-hmm. was um, obviously uh, I I don't know if we have time to get into like the entire <laughs> Russia Gate thing and like the the. The kind of priming of the pump of reactionary um, 
thought that we have that, you know, Putin is this like all encompassing kind of Sauron figure uh, <laughs> that, that will inevitably take over the world um, and maybe the moon after that. But right now he's just focused <laughs> on Ukraine. He's just focused on this tiny uh, country that he's having a hard time apparently um, taking over, which I'm full of rabbit trails on this because uh, I think our understanding of of the situation, and that's why I'm so glad to talk to you, is so incredibly stinted and stunted. Um, and then, yeah, you look at even Putin's rationale um, for stated rationale, because he's a world leader and he does not have a history of being like standing alone as being a, a voice of courage and honesty. <laughs> um, yeah. He's just like everyone else, perhaps worse than the most, who knows. Um, but he even states in his speech, we're not trying to, to conquer all of these places. We're not trying to take over Kiev, which I read this in preparation for our conversation. I did not realize that that wasn't his goal because that's every single report that we read from the AP to Fox News to CNN. Everything is about how he's having, he's just can't take over uh, Kiev and he's, he's just a bumbling fool and and then, yeah, you look back at like, well, this is his what? stated goals. I don't, I not... certainly, yeah, I certainly wouldn't think he was a bumbling fool. I do think we need to be skeptical of, of the 100%. statements. Yeah, yeah that, that he's he... opening his mouth and he's, yeah. yeah. I mean, the other thing is I suspect too, that he, w one of the things that I suspect uh, is that he, ex he, he expected that the invasion would have been bolded differently than it did. Sure. I think he was, uh, first of all, uh, on two levels, I think he thought that the the Russian power would have gone further, that they would have had a much quicker advance, that the fighting against them wouldn't have been so fierce. So I don't think he came into it thinking that we were going to be, I, I mean, now so many months into this, I think he thought it was going to be quick. I also don't think he anticipated the very rapid Western response because he did not get a similar Western response to previous invasions. And so that is significant. Yeah, and um, overwhelming consistent weapons. I mean, weapons, are we close I mean, to all of billion that. at this point? It's, it's an enormous yeah. amount. And so that he, I do, I do not think he planned for that because previously he had not had a whole lot of pushback. There had been complaints and, but not this kind of broad support and uh, to insulate everyday Russians from what's happening, right? So he, there's a sense of attempting to protect the everyday Russians from the kind of inflation to the extent that he can. He's obviously cracked down on any, I mean, you can get arrested for saying anything against the war, people getting fired from jobs for signing petitions. Um, there are real efforts at uh, these kind of spreading propaganda posters all over with like QR codes where you can learn about heroic soldiers or sort of, yeah. you know, so it's very tightly controlled. So he's he's really marshalling he's giving an image of what's happening that is in opposite is sort of stark contrast to what's actually unfolding. It, on that same note though, isn't, isn't Zelensky in Ukraine, hasn't he clamped down on dissident parties and hasn't like, isn't, especially on the left, I know there's, there's an incredible like silencing of, of dissidents and, you know, whether they're right or wrong. I mean, that's obviously, uh, sort of beside the point, like if, if the, yeah. again, like Zelensky is, is also a world leader and he's opening his mouth. So if we believe him, then that's on us. Um, yeah. But, but yeah, I yeah. mean, it, it's just, is that, I mean, 
when has there ever been a war that we're not that, uh, that I mean, that's yeah. completely lying about everything. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, the other thing, too, is we see that, you know, you see that kind of uh, even in the United States where we have considerably more freedoms to say what we want, like any time mm -hmm. that, there, that the U.S. has been engaged in a war, there have been clampdowns on people who criticize it in extreme forms in like World War one for example but even for people who were protesting the iraq war there was uh kind of not an official effort to crack down but certainly like critiques of people and that sort of thing um so yeah i mean i that is that is part of part of what happens i suspect very frustratingly for those of us who are strong advocates for free speech rights mm -hmm. um yeah 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 and, and just the i think for us here it's I was listening to Noam Chomsky talk about this the other day, but um, you know, you have you have official silencing, and then you have like the our last episode um, as people listen to this was about the House of Un-American activities and how they were um, making people like Woody Guthrie and Pete Seeger and um, and a host of other people um, testify to their political beliefs um, because they were so dangerous and just being members of the Communist Party or affiliates of them. Um, yeah. And I mean, listen, like Amnesty International has certainly criticized the yeah. arbitrary arrests that are that have happened and that sort of thing. So it's yeah. And yeah. and yeah, like even leading into leading into this war, there was quite I haven't looked at the report um, recently, but I know there was a report on like the most corrupt nations in the world and Ukraine was up there. Um, I mean, so yeah, it's, it's. Um, I feel like anytime we get in a war, it's really, or we see a war or we're oh. super engaged in the war financially here. Like it's really yeah. easy to, to just make it so clean and simple. Well, yeah. that's the thing, because it isn't. And I mean, some of this, too, when we think about some of the challenges that a lot of these countries that were formerly part of the Soviet Union that were either either literally part of the empire or that were client states, the transition from that system to a more, either a more open economic system or towards a democracy, it, it's not that old, right? So this is a, some, a process that's unfolding. Uh, corruption is not especially surprising in light of that. And given some of the, the challenges that they face, it makes it it makes it less black and white when the United States engages or when what the West engages, because that's the very sort of quick thing to point to and say, well, there's still human rights abuses. Yes, there's repression. There's corrupt. There's enormous corruption. Sure. Yeah. I, the challenge is how do you how do you kind of guide a country toward a country that is in the process of becoming a democratic country or a more democratic country? What do you do to support it? how do you help it tamp down on corruption? Um, it's not gonna get less corrupt if Russia takes over the country or invades and takes parts of the country, right? So it's not gonna, it's not gonna ease the corruption there. Um, the United States can't go in and plant democracy. We have found that out very clearly. We can keep from, trying. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, and the I next time, it, it has the next not time panned out be, well. <laughs> no, the, no, no, the next time is gonna be perfect. Would you right. just watch and see? Yeah. Yeah, like that doesn't pan out. out. So yeah. when you have a country, but when you have a country on its own that is moving in that direction, what do you do to support it? You know, what types of aid help? I mean, these are these are 
both challenging foreign policy questions, but also challenging philosophical questions. Like, what do you do to support a country to move in that direction, to clamp, you know, to tamp down on corruption? Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's been questions recently too about, you know, you know, is the United States how much how much corruption are we dealing with in that sort of thing? Where it's again, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so. You just got a promotion. You are now president, um, or at least secretary of state. If you don't want to, okay. if you don't want all the extra responsibility for domestic <laughs> stuff, we'll keep you yeah. exactly where you want to be. Um, we've we have thrown, like I said, close to hundred billion extra at Ukraine for arms, essentially at this point. Um, yeah. To my chagrin and anger, like. Every single Democrat in Congress, including my beloved Bernie Sanders, voted for this. There's a small contingent of complete wingnuts on the right in the House of Representatives that actually voted against the, what was it, 80 billion or 40 billion? Um, huge amount, yeah. Yeah. So we're, and every day, you know, now it's kind of like in the back pages or whatever the back pages means since we don't actually have newspapers. But um, all the way down, if I scroll all the way down in my AP app, I can see that, we're th that we just threw like, you know, a couple billion extra. Um, so you're the Secretary of State. What is, what, where do we go from here to prevent nuclear war, to, to end the suffering of the Ukrainian people? Um, there's congressmen, out there that have been saying we're going to fight Putin to the last Ukrainian, which seems really, really great unless you are a Ukrainian. And then that doesn't like with with Russia still having a superior firepower to Ukraine, that's not a really good gamble if you are a Ukrainian. Maybe from Washington, that sounds tough and awesome, but doubt it if you're if you're part of the equation. So, OK, there you go. You've been promoted. What, what what's, do I do? What's I've been policy? promoted. Yes. Um, yes. What's our new policy? Like, where do we go from here? And yeah, uh, no, I mean, well, I think one of the one of the challenges, and this is a challenge, I, I think, for anyone coming in to these positions of power, is that uh, you're coming in in the middle as decisions have already been made, and so there are constraints on on your ability to act. The United States unilaterally withdraws future you know aid that it might be giving whether that's you know direct sort of weaponry or the kind of intelligence aid that it's giving the training that sort of thing that's going to send a signal not just to ukraine and russia but to the entire world uh, you know do do you want the united states to pull totally out uh to, to leave to to take all of its uh, military weapons and our military toys and go home and and just sort of leave the ukrainians uh, well they have also been receiving aid from other Western powers, but but basically because to kind of, of leave them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I think the Western powers have their own ability to act and make decisions about that. And they have been. I, I don't suspect that just because the United States pulled out that all of those other countries would necessarily either. But but so do you do you pull out and do you leave them to, your, to their own devices to fight um, in an under resourced way against this this bully that. Though certainly you know, it is not, it's not the Soviet Union, right? It doesn't have the military strength that it clearly doesn't have the military strength that it has. It's still a, a bigger, a bigger nation with, with more resources to throw at Ukraine than Ukraine has to throw back. And that's, that seems like a problem, especially 
again, there's a certain amount of path dependency once something has started. This is why, uh, to some extent, uh, you know, the we, I mean, the withdrawal from Afghanistan could be a whole other conversation. But like, you can say that uh, it seems like the same like pulling out argument was to yeah. stay in Afghanistan, and that kept us for 20 years, and we and walked which, away and it crumbled. Yeah, well, I think it's more like how do you coordinate if you are going to withdraw? How do you coordinate a withdrawal that is not similarly disastrous? I, you know, and some a lot of that was set in motion before the was obviously was set in motion before the withdrawal happened. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what I would do. I think that the issue is that it's a sort of a perilous situation. I don't want to give license to bully states to go in and invade their neighbors and take over their territory. It creates an enormous amount of instability for the world, for the world economy, but also for innocent civilians living in these countries. So I. I don't feel like the answer is to just let these let the like like oh these guys are big we don't want to get involved I guess just let them do what they want that doesn't that doesn't sit right with me but I also am very sympathetic to the idea that the United States cannot alone police the world it shouldn't necessarily be doing that um yeah I'd be a I'd be a poor uh I'd be a poor uh <laughs> secretary of state because I you know the historian in me is always like well things are complicated mm -hmm. we're dealing in a moment of a kind of fog of war we don't have all the information we can't predict how everything's going to go there are there are a lot of unknown unknowns to you right, to borrow right. from uh but another evil man yeah i was gonna say yeah another war criminal. Right, speaking of war criminals right um and so so yeah i just i i, I mostly just feel sort of torn in the sense that like I can understand why the decision is to to try to be there to help while also recognizing that there are drawbacks to providing that aid um yeah it's it's tough it's tough yeah. I'm not sure what I would recommend right and now that we're in it you know what I mean now that we're in it I'm not mm -hmm. sure what the right way forward is I certainly yeah. wouldn't commit troops which mm -hmm. doesn't seem like it's going to happen, but but I suspect some people could propose that. That is not what I would do. Right. Um, yeah, and it's. I mean, it seems like the way that we're that we're being prepared for this is much like Syria, where it's it's this proxy war that none of us really think about until like every six months or so, and we're oh, geez, that's still going on, and like we're still <laughs> we're yeah. like both sides really are just seeing who can destroy this this small like kind of nothing of a country power wise like it's just a well and again like u.s at worst right like yeah. u.s sort of a, obviously attacks on civilians just beyond the pale no mm -hmm. right that is not exist that is a, a different situation right so the u.s is not launching barrel bombs and russian territory but we're but we're arming Saudi Arabia, right? To no, that's to do what I'm, far I, worse. And that's sort of what I'm saying. Like, yeah, right, these are these right. are the kind of cases where I'm like, no, U.S. Yeah. out. <laughs> what are yeah, you doing? Right, right. right, um, right. I, I think it's a I think the situation in Ukraine is a different one than than in some of these other places. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I hope you're right. I hope someone smarter than the two of us uh, yeah. can get can actually start thinking, get it in their brain to start thinking about peace and bringing this to a resolution. That doesn't, I mean, if we want to embarrass Putin and drive him from polite society, great, but maybe, maybe we just stop, uh, you know, bombs coming into residential neighborhoods first and, you know, 
even yeah. if that if, even if that means a feather in someone's cap and then we can figure it out later but I, that's what i'm looking at. i need that person who can figure out how do we how do we square this really challenging situation mm -hmm. uh, globally because it's yeah i mean yeah. i just the, the sort of attacks on civilians that's yeah yeah it's i don't know how more, anybody can countenance it you know right right and it's it's like every every war like when it when has there been a war without <laughs> civilian casualties it's just yeah it's part of it's yeah evil it's an evil yeah. enterprise <laughs> yeah absolutely there has to be a better way to resolve these issues yes well, let's give peace a chance lauren yeah i'm here for that all right cool. i'm sorry i don't have the answers i know i, I, I called you up because i thought you had the answers alas, now I, gotta, I gotta look elsewhere all right alas, i can just give you some history a little bit of history <laughs> yeah well thanks for thanks for talking and for being a good sport on, on all my pushbacks and uh give me give me good pushback as well um you told us last time what you were working on, uh, and it was about um, the history of humanitarian aid and kind of how we do things in human with humanitarian aid around the world. If I remember that right, so how's that work coming? And works coming good. So what part actually, of that did I mess up? <laughs> no, no. So it's so it's a history of U.S. foreign aid broadly. Yes, yes, yes. So humanitarian, military, development, economic, all types of aid, and thinking about the. The debates that have unfolded under, uh, you know, as part of extending that aid throughout the world. So members of Congress, this is this is their chance, really, uh, because they control, they control the funding. Um, they they have a a position here where they can affect foreign policy in important ways. And aid is an interesting way to shape foreign policy. It can have. Uh, potentially positive effects. It often has effects that they don't anticipate. Uh, things things that seem very humanitarian focused in principle can go terribly wrong. So it's very interesting and complicated. It makes debates make strange bedfellows. So I find it to be an exciting topic to research. I was just at the National Archives last month uh, cool. looking into information on you know USAID and, uh, and, and the Mutual Security Act. So I found a lot of interesting conversations between the State Department and members of Congress who some of whom were very strongly opposed to aid some of whom were big supporters and just thinking about how all of these pieces of government interact with each other how they try to shape each other's perspectives and how that in turn affects U.S. posture to the world and the world's posture to us so I think there's some big big topics to get at I'm in the early phases of the book I'm excited about it though and we'll see what comes of it yeah, awesome. Well, yep. I'll uh, I'll bug you to pick your brain about something before then. I'm sure, um, but uh, we'll be looking forward to to getting our hands on that when when it comes out. Thanks again, Dr. Tork, for uh, for making this happen, and, and let's talk soon. Absolutely, thank you. And that's the show. Thank you so much for listening to Dissident Orthodoxy. We have some great content for you coming up soon. In the meantime, go on to Apple Podcasts, give us a rating and review, tell a friend, support us for as little as a buck a month on patreon.com slash Casey Hobbs. Thanks so much. We'll talk to you soon.